Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Ontario residents can now get a second shot of their choice if they got AstraZeneca first. City Council is divided over LRT. What a surprise. And how much influence does China have over Canada? Apparently quite a bit. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's official. Back to school won't happen until September. That's okay. The dandelions are way too tall anyway. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Well, the intercom's stuck. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes uh, as we wind out week number 63. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to get a hold of us and engage through the website. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, the news that I guess we're hearing right now in regard to uh, how things are changes, the up, uh, changing the updates for today, Ontario residents residents who got AstraZeneca as a shot can now uh, can now uh, as a first shot I guess can now get their second shot uh, in the form of an AstraZeneca or sorry a uh, Pfizer or a Moderna it uh, really is up to you now so you've got three choices for your second shot uh, whether it's uh, well, that's if you had the AstraZeneca, they're not going to give you AstraZeneca for any more first shots, of course. Uh, but if you did get it the first time out, the second time, if you don't want it or it's not available to you, you can get Pfizer or AstraZeneca. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and he is with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, doing very well, thanks, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the show again. So your thoughts on this announcement now, Ontario residents uh, getting the nod for another brand for their second shot, uh, Pfizer or Moderna, if they don't want the AstraZeneca or if it's not available. It'll be interesting. What do you think the bigger issue is? It's not going to be available or that people just don't want to get it? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the um, you know hesitancy in regard to getting the second dose of AstraZeneca is, is, is an important issue uh, because of, you know, people worried about, blood clotting so so i definitely think that's one factor the the other factor is is supply my, you know my sense is if there was a lot more supply they would still probably be you know pushing that as well but but seeing the the lack of suppliers there my you know my sense is that uh, you know in combination with the uh, you know concerns that people uh, are, are indicating then then uh, you know going to the uh, the mix and match approach you you know, seems a fair, fair approach. So is it safe to say the government's probably not looking to purchase any more AstraZeneca since there seems to be enough of the other? Well, yeah, yeah my, my sense is that if, you know, if I, if I was buy, buying uh, the vaccines, I would sort of say, well, okay, we've, we've had enough of the AstraZeneca, let's uh, just focus on the Moderna and uh, Pfizer. And what about your thoughts on the information uh, regarding mixing uh, the uh, two doses? Is, uh, you know, we've heard that obviously safety-wise it's good. Efficacy, I, I think we're still out on, aren't we? Uh, but there can be a slightly greater risk of, um, of, a, uh, of a reaction to this. What are your thoughts on mixing the two? Yeah, def- definitely uh, this, 
this aspect of mix and match or or what we what they call prime and boost uh, where where you have a first dose and then a second dose that the aspect of of having uh, you or using a vaccine of a different type uh, for the second dose is pretty pretty consistent as in it's been done before it's been been done with for HIV it's been done for Ebola and, and other other uh, uh, conditions and so so it, it, it's my sense is that it was probably always on the table as an option uh, it, you know once once uh, you know that the, the uh, AstraZeneca was rolled out and so now that we've we're seeing some trials come out to our results from trials uh, you know that there's small still a small number of people uh, but but they're very encouraging in regard to uh, an increased immune response uh, in comparison to just two doses of the AstraZeneca. So, so you know, like my sense is it's you know it's it's a pretty consistent uh, with with what we you know what we do with with other other vaccines uh, and and treating and, and dealing with other conditions. But uh, you know, definitely as you said, the there is uh, reports from from the trials of of uh, increased side effects that that is is one of the uh, Aspects with mixing and matching, and, and uh, they call it reactogenicity, and so so it is, it's a known a known thing to happen. Uh, but but you know the the actual benefits uh, are identified as as having a you know a stronger immune response, and, and that's something we would have expected. So obviously side effects, but certainly not blood clots. Is that the way you look at this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the the you know the minor minor side effects of fever, chills, headache. Uh, and so it's just sort of, in essence, the you know, basically with the, with the second uh, second dose, because it, because the the Pfizer is using a different mechanism, your body is sort of responding. It's saying yes, it is, the, you know, it is the uh, COVID virus, but it sort of seems like it's something different. And so so you know, it's creating those flu-like symptoms, the the minor flu-like symptoms again, but that seem to be, but because you've your immune system's been primed, and this is boost is providing a boost in the immune system. There is also a, a boost in those uh, those minor side effects. So uh, some are reporting, some are saying that this could actually be better by mixing the dose and, and increasing efficacy. When will we know that? That's still a ways away. Um, well, well, like I, like I think from a broader population perspective. It is, but the you know, initial studies are showing uh, very good signs of that. And uh, from what I understand, they, they have been doing trials for, of AstraZeneca with not just with the Pfizer, but they're looking at Moderna. They're, they've also been looking at it with the uh, the Russian version of the, the COVID vaccine. So, so, so definitely, you know, the, these trials have been been going on, and uh, you know, the more more results we have, uh, I think the the better. And but, but on my sense is that. Those, those results will just reconfirm that that this uh, this approach is uh, is a is a you know viable one and, and and one that can give us a lot more options. So obviously, and those options are: do you take two AstraZeneca or do you take one AstraZeneca and a Pfizer? And are we to assume that if you mix the two, you're just going to get more efficacy than if you just have two uh, AstraZeneca? Yeah, well, that yeah, definitely. The results are showing that if you have uh, AstraZeneca and then the Pfizer, you'll have a better immune response than what you would with just two AstraZeneca. Uh, that the results aren't in 
route for the Moderna, but 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 we'd expect the same result because of the uh, the, the technology that the uh, Moderna uses is the same as a Pfizer. So so you know if you've had uh, the first dose with AstraZeneca, uh, you know definitely you know your options are either do a second dose with AstraZeneca if if it's available, or or you know just rule that out and just go for the uh, Pfizer or, or Moderna and uh, you know overall we would expect you to have a better immune response but you should be aware that the, the side effects could could be a bit stronger uh, initially Wow so uh, there is some you know it's not necessarily a slam dunk is it or is it well I, I think people have to make that individual choice yeah. uh, like at the moment, they can make that individual choice, but but uh, you know if the uh, AstraZeneca uh, doesn't come through, you know the more more supply, then I'm sure that you know the government will make that choice for everyone. But uh, you know I, I know that uh, you know some people you know have had a, a you know a reasonably strong uh, side effects from the, the first dose, and and they're all well, those people are always going to be a bit more hesitant to do the second dose anyway. No matter which which one they go for, but 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 if if there is these reports of you know even stronger uh, side effects, I think people people who had strong side effects from the first AstraZeneca will might be much more hesitant to go down the the Pfizer route and and uh, but but you know overall I think you know we, we're still encouraging everyone to to get the second dose even if you had uh, you know suffered side effects from the first dose. Uh, uh, Dr. Lowe in Peel Region uh, has uh, come out and said that uh, they have found the Indian variant, which I guess they're now calling the Delta variant. That'll only add to the, uh, the that'll only add to the clarity. Um, now with this variant, it is being uh, spotted in Peel, or it is in Peel rather, uh, and is very concerned of the spread of this over the summer, and uh, and obviously wants to see the continued effort in vaccination. What are your thoughts on this variant? And you know, obviously, we just had the debate about whether the schools should be closed or not. Um, and, and, you know, I guess it depends on which side of the fence you are on that and what your decision was. Uh, but what are your thoughts on this new variant and its, uh, and its prevalence in Peel? Yeah, I, I agree that it's, uh, something that we need to keep a, a good eye on because the, the, you know, reports from overseas, uh, are that it is much more transmissible and, you know, much more infectious. So, so definitely, you know, if it, if it starts to take a, Take a foothold in the community. We, you know, we could be in trouble because of, uh, you know, uh, it means that uh, that could trigger, you know, the, the the cases going up again. And so, so definitely, we have to keep an eye on it. Uh, but, but you know, some of the reports in regard to these mixing and matching are saying that that uh, because of the the mix and match, uh, that that could actually provide some benefits for 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 the variants uh, and and improved. Uh, you know, pre- uh, prevention of, of uh, effects of those. So, so, so I think we have to sort of keep it all all in mind. But, but definitely, the uh, the the uh, variants and and particularly this new variant. You know, we'd expect to see more variants continue to keep coming. Uh, you know, they are of concern, and and it really highlights that we are we are in a you know a, a pandemic, a global. It's a global issue. And, and while while countries like uh, India and 
and, and Pakistan and other countries uh, are having trouble uh, with controlling it, that that will always have flow-on effects to to uh, to Canada. Uh, with you know, it appears that most places in Ontario are sitting around the seventy percent vaccination uh, mark for their first dose. It, it, that's not enough. To well, that's not enough to push away any sort of fourth wave or a variant. Well, it it, it definitely gives uh, you know protection, as in you know you have a a, a reasonable immune. Uh, immunity, but but because because of because the vaccines are, are designed as this prime and boost approach, you really need the the second dose to to give you the, the 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 full level of immunity that's possible with with the vaccine. So 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 definitely, you know, the the more that we have for, from first dose, uh, first doses, that gives us a, a lot more uh, protection in within the community against these, but. But uh, it just depends on, you know, how effective just one dose is against the, uh, the variants because, you know, the viruses, uh, you know, their job is to keep uh, mutating to try and, you know, uh, get better at infecting people. And so we, we have to keep uh, vigilant about, uh, you know, what we're doing to try and control them. I think everybody wanted to see the kids uh, back at school at least for a couple of weeks. That being said, the the modeling showed we could see an increase in new cases after we're seeing them been going down for for a time. Uh, six to eleven percent increase in new cases if the schools open. Considering these variants, was the was this this the right decision to keep them closed? Yeah, definitely, it's a uh, a difficult decision. You know, from a from a purely from an infectious disease perspective, I, I think it is. Uh, but you know, I think you know from a broader public health perspective, you also yeah. have to weigh the uh, you know mental health and and you know socialisation issues. Uh, I probably would have you know liked to you know have some option for the kids to be able to connect and and maybe connect in in face to face, whether or not it's you know full full school approach or or some some sort of uh, way. But but I think it would be good for for kids to. Uh, Sort of reconnect with their classmates, you know, in in some sort of face to face way uh, before the end of school. But uh, yeah, it, it is a def- definitely a difficult decision. Yeah, they're talking about some sort of outdoor graduation if they can swing that, and uh, obviously, who knows what that's going to look like at this point. Uh, Thomas Tenke with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Uh, Thomas, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Really appreciate the time. Have a great day. Here is today's Daily Commentary. Premier Doug Ford made it official yesterday. The kids will not be going back for in-school learning until next September. Before his news conference was even over, the opposition NDP and Liberals were pumping out the press releases piling on the Premier for putting patios ahead of students. Whatever that means, I'm not sure, because the last time I checked, patios weren't open either. Clearly, these news releases are done well ahead of time to cash in on whatever is announced one way or the other. But it makes you wonder what the opposition would be saying today if Doug Ford had reopened the schools this term. Would they be congratulating the premier, patting him on the back for making the same decision they have arrived at? Way to go, Mr. Premier. Thanks for making the right call. I highly doubt it. If Ford had reopened schools, the opposition would still be screaming, but their talking points would be different to fit the decision. 
They'd be complaining the school's reopening is endangering our kids' lives unless they shrink the class sizes to what the unions wanted in their collective agreements well before the pandemic even started. The great thing about being the opposition, you can suck and blow at the same time and never have to be held account for anything, unlike the governing party of the day. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We certainly are all horrified and shocked to find out uh, the news of the remains of 215 children below uh, a Kamloops residential school. Although this information has certainly been suspected and and actually confirmed in the Truth and Reconciliation Report uh, a few years ago. So uh, why the reaction now? We just didn't know. We didn't read it. We, it's going to be an incredible dilemma for Canadians uh, to make this right. Let's bring in Dr. Stacey Allison Casson, Assistant Professor, Teaching Stream with the Faculty of Information, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Stacey, we've certainly seen uh, lots of ceremony, lots of talk. Are we making progress and and this is before we get to the impact of, of what we've seen this week uh, prior to that are we making are we making progress well uh, i think that as we've heard from many uh indigenous people that you know there has been a lot of feelings that the reconciliation part and especially now i think the when we talk about the truth of reconciliation uh truth of reconciliation that there has been um, not so much uh, progress, really. Um, the 94 calls of action were uh, released a number of years ago, as you said, and very few of those calls to action have been implemented. What's the impact of this event? What's the impact of the discovery of these remains? I think now Canadians who may, uh, as you said, this is not. this is actually not news. Uh, to to indigenous people, to people who have have been following uh, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission's work and, and the report, but it is made uh, you know the the reality of genocide, the reality that uh, children uh, died in these schools um, is is made very real, and just the fact that these children not only died but were uh, buried without documentation, without being named, um, without any kind of marker, is very stark. And I think we can all relate to, uh, certainly I'm a parent, and to think about um, being a parent and not knowing where your child is, uh, is devastating. Is this situation, is it a tipping point? Is it, does this change things? Or, like all of this, it's news one day or a week or what have you, and then it fades uh, into the background. Is, is this a turning point? I hope so. I, I hope any anybody listening now or anybody who has been has been horrified by this story uh, continues to to hold this and to think about ways that that um, you know we can demand action from government. We can demand action from from churches. Uh, from fellow citizens, from municipalities, to find uh, the other children uh, who are buried, to demand action on a wide range of issues. So I, I truly hope so that 
that we can at least no longer um, sort of turn a blind eye to these to these realities. I want to play a clip from uh, question period yesterday. Uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau going at it over this. Listen to this. Mr. Speaker, we don't think of Canada as a country with mass grave sites. And because we don't, this week has changed us all. But we were warned they were there. Children disappeared from families without any closure of what happened to them. Will the government commit to urgent action on calls to action 71 to 76 from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report so that these families can have some closure. We have fully accepted all the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which includes working with Indigenous communities to locate their missing loved ones and their unmarked burial places in a culturally informed way. In 2019, we invested $33.8 million in this work and have been engaging with Indigenous communities impacted by residential schools on how best to proceed. We will continue to move forward, recognize the horror and the tragedy of the past and fix the wrongs of the present in partnership with Indigenous peoples. Uh, that's the Prime Minister and uh, Conservative Opposition Leader Aaron O'Toole. Um, we, we keep hearing about, uh, Stacey, we keep hearing about the work that's being done, the money that's been spent, yet we still keep hearing about these issues, and in the case of Kamloops, uh, confirmation. Um, h- how do you get to the next step here? Uh, is this just so large and complex a problem? There is no easy answer, uh, and it is these slow steps. Or is there a way just to move this all forward? You know, I, I think Canadians are genuinely tired of of dealing with this, and they want it solved. They want they they want restitution. They want to move on from this. They want to know that they're doing the right thing. But but we seem to be stalled like, perpetually. Well, I'll say that I think there is a clear pathway in the ninety four calls to action about about what needs to be done and. There will the work is complex. There is absolutely no question, and I think Canadians cannot expect an easy answer or that the work yeah. is going to be solved quickly. These are uh, we are changing. I mean, again, the the ways that Canada was founded. I think many Canadians are not aware of the continuing impacts of of the Indian Act, for example. Um, we may want to see uh, solutions, uh, and I, I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario, so I'm, uh, I'm Indigenous. And so, you know, recognizing that some of the work is slow, but also recognizing where the holdups are. This is not, um, it's work that needs to also be done uh, carefully. It is also about dismantling structures that many Canadians probably are not comfortable with i'll just i'll just say that so i challenge people to actually consider what it means to do this work alongside indigenous people and i will also say that the government does need maybe there has been spending promises but that money hasn't always or for the most part hasn't been actually spent so we need to see those those that work going forward uh, there seems to be an issue in regard to this uh, situation that, that came up this week in regard to the 215 uh, souls that are underneath this Kamloops residential school site is records. There seems to be issues. Uh, some do not want to release records. Some records are missing. Some records are 
uh, we, we just don't even know if they've been destroyed, if they're even around. You talked about how it's imperative to ID uh, all of these remains, and and this is just one school. There's there's you know uh, I think um, about just under 150 of these across the across the country, or there were uh, at what point? Where are these records? Who has them? Well, what happened in the case of residential schools? In case your your listeners are not aware, is that the residential school system is a policy of the Canadian government. But the Canadian government outsourced the running of the schools to various religious groups, including the Catholic Church, uh, the Anglican Church. And, um, and so I will actually urge every, every, everyone to read the call to action if you have not done so. Volume 4 of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report specifically deals with uh, burials, uh, caretaking by, by churches. And it is a... You can see the lack of record keeping both in the policy from um, the government, which did not actually uh, set any policy for the keeping of records, and then and even record keeping on the part of of the individual churches. And so um, children's names were not necessarily recorded. A death might be recorded, but not the, ch- the child's name. Um, the Catholic Church has not released all the records. Uh, that they were that they were asked to. So we have not seen all of those records released, and so we don't necessarily have a way to tie uh, even known burial sites with specific uh, children. So we need the Catholic Church to release those records. We need the government. The government of Canada destroyed records uh, for a period of time, so those records were absolutely um, are not even in existence. So there is a, a direct link between the ability to to know uh, the truth of what happened at residential schools and uh, record keeping. And the Catholic Church has cited uh, issues such as, as privacy in keeping these records um, uh, out of sort of the public or away from the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work. But that needs to change. Um, I guess we can certainly understand how, we don't understand why, but certainly how these uh, were incomplete and, and not accurate and such. But it doesn't explain why we don't at least release what we have and uh, at least find out and, and acknowledge those that we can. Um, so is this about lack of records or is this that people just don't want to share them? Uh, and will this situation around the 215 uh, souls in Kamloops, will this put pressure, even legally, crimin- uh, you know, as far as criminality, on the church to at least be cooperative and, and, and deliver what they do have? Absolutely. I think those are really important questions to be asking. Why, why records were not released? Uh, will they be released now, and how do we apply pressure on um, on churches to release these records? And uh, I hope so. I hope this is this the coming to light of this mass grave of 215 children um, does put pressure uh, on uh, churches to release those documents. Uh, it is a human right. It is absolutely a human right. It's enshrined. I mean, it is in the calls to action at that. The Indigenous people have a right to know under uh, under under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples to know the truth of what happened, and that is in relation to accessing uh, documents, statistics, records, um, 
and finally uh, knowing. Um, so I, I truly hope that we will see movement um, from the responsible bodies. Um, it, it seems that uh, that some are supportive, uh, some are not. No cooperation, no comment. Missionary Oblates, who ran Kamloops School, won't release records, says the headline in the National Post. Also, on the opposite of that, uh, the Vancouver Archbishop seems supportive and says those records should be released. Is that lip service? Is that going to go anywhere? I hope so. I can also speak, uh, not only am I Indigenous or I'm, I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario, but I'm a Roman Catholic. And so I can just speak as a member of, uh, of the Catholic Church. How do, you personally, how do you personally grapple with that? Well, it's really hard when we talk about reconciling. I mean, how does one reconcile, um, reconcile these issues? I truly want, I want uh, my church to take responsibility and I want to see the Pope apologize. I want to see uh, this made right. And um, I think for those uh, who are have purview over their records, uh, to make the move to to um, make them available, to to make it right, to do that work, because uh, it is truly a tragic situation. And you know, vitally, vitally important. I can't, I feel like I can't, I can't stress it enough. And, and as I said, it's, it's in the, the TRC calls to action. Uh, I think it is, um, hopeful that we are seeing, uh, some movement on, on this front. Why do you think they won't? Do you think because if you admit something like this, then it will cost you restitution will have to be paid. It, it's, it's a financial issue. Well, I can't, I can't speak to, Specifics as as to why I'm certainly not not in a position to to speak for uh, for the Catholic Church or for any of the churches. Um, certainly, it's complex. It's a complex uh, issue, and 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 uh, responsibility and and culpability certainly have have come up. Uh, getting back to to Kamloops, what should happen there next? I mean, obviously, it's up to the community and and what they want to do. Uh, with these unmarked graves, and you have to respect that. But, you know, as a Canadian, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, at least these the, these people should be identified and, and perhaps even the cause of death uh, be investigated. But is that too much? Will we see that happen? And and how does that relate to the other schools across the country or the other school sites? Well, as you said, I think it is up to the community to guide that work, and they have been doing that work so far. It is uh, it is really needs to be led by by communities, individual communities um, on each site. Um, and again, that's actually again cited in the the TRC calls to action. And you know, certainly, what we need to see is is the availability of resources to do this work. So that is doing the work of imaging. It's doing the work of uh, providing the records, of providing as much support as possible to have school sites, um, have, have uh, you know, children identified, to have the, the sites found. Because it's not only the unknown burial sites, but there are known uh, cemeteries on school sites that have been neglected, are not maintained, uh, you know, might, you know, there's the, the situation of even perhaps now being on private land. So all of that really needs to be sorted out 
um, to recognize the the certainly um, to give peace to families uh, and to be able to connect those loved ones. We've certainly seen um, uh, the outpouring of emotion, uh, the memorials and such. have also seen, again, vandalizing of statues uh, of those related uh, to residential schools. What are your thoughts on this? Should these statues come down? Should these statues have plaques put up next to them that are the same size, proportionally saying, hey, here's the story, here's what happened uh, as an educational uh, component? W- what should be done here? Well, we know that these sites are, we've seen it uh, over the past several years that uh, these statues can become or, or commemorations points of, of um, attention. And I know that uh, certainly what I've seen uh, in discussion that these um, statues are sites of commemoration. And we have to remember, I think, or or remove the the link or think about the link between history and commemoration as being as being separate and what what is being commemorated and how are we thinking about uh the communities that these commemorations uh, these statues are in and thinking about what these sites uh, need to be and then listening to the community i think that's again a really important part of uh of this process. I mean, things, things change. Uh, history is not static. Uh, commemoration is not a, a static point. And to really put a lot of thought into, um, into what is needed. I will say another part of the, of the calls to, to action in the TRC are, are actually sites of commemoration. And this can be a municipal responsibility. So do we have uh, appropriate uh, municipal places where we are um, also providing commemoration to uh, the experience of uh, residential schools and that reality uh, within Canada. So that's uh, another point to bring in. It's not just about how we look at some of these figures that are previously or have been held up as, as, uh, as responsible for things like the Indian Act, residential schools, but how do you think the community feel? And I know obviously this is a very broad question and, and a personal issue, but how do you think the community feels about the removal of these figures? Is you know because as you said, and, and a very valid point, these were put up to commemorate these people, um, and and now obviously that position has changed. Uh, can these be used not to commemorate, but to vindicate, to or, or to to criticize, to point to those faults? Uh, as a educational tool, um, you know, someone said to me uh, the other day that you know, if the studio, if the statue gets red paint thrown on it, just leave it. That's how the people are feeling right then. And so, uh, again, is it is it an opera? Should we take it down, or should it, or does the community feel it needs to be physically removed, or there needs to be balance? Yeah, I think it, it can act in that way. I, you know, I would just think about the example of the of the removal of the of the uh, John A. McDonald statue in Charlottetown. I happened to spend quite yeah. a bit of time in Charlottetown, um, and that statue wasn't there very long. And I know that the community, uh, Indigenous community there, did 
did want that statue removed, and they sort of said it's not like as if the statue is removed that we suddenly forget about John A. Macdonald, or that we can't uh, use that statue in another context. So it, it it is about providing that appropriate context, uh, and about also thinking about care. So this is a deeply traumatic. I mean, if we think, why are we having this conversation? Because of, because the bodies of 215 children, some as young as three years old were just found in an unmarked mass grave. Yeah. And those are adults that were, you know, the, who's responsible for that? And we think about that as a, if that was your family member, that's deeply traumatic. So for what one person might be sort of an interesting conversation or, right. or no. point of contention yep. is deeply, deeply hurtful to Very much someone. like the Confederate flag is in the South. I mean, the same sort exactly. of thing. Yeah, no, I see your point. Uh, Dr. Stacy Allison Kassan with us, assistant professor teaching stream with the Faculty of Information and the University, or sorry, at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Councillors were expected to vote on a motion Wednesday that would direct staff to work with Metrolinx and the province on a memorandum of understanding for the project. Instead, they've deferred the mayor's motion until June 16th when they hope to know more about the impact of day-to-day operating and maintenance costs on city taxpayers. That is the moment where we commit to the project one way or the other. Those costs are estimated at $20 million annually minus Fairbox revenue and Castor Councillor Lloyd Ferguson wants to know how much more that impact can be reduced by retiring buses on the east-west corridor and eliminating incentive programs that encourage downtown investment. If all those savings are added up, does that mean we can get this system with no additional operation and maintenance cost? I will not support directing uh, an MOU to be prepared until I know the answers to these questions. Ferguson's vote may prove crucial. There's an almost even split on council whether to back the LRT project. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. Why am I giggling as I'm listening to this? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1234. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping us between the rails. Uh, the LRT discussion is on again. Let's bring in, uh, just for fun, uh, former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Deany. He is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, but explain just for fun for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> because it seems we keep having these same discussions over and over again, no matter what the month or what the year is. Uh, let me play devil's advocate here, Larry. Is there anything uh, wrong with uh, what Councillor Ferguson is looking for here? Uh, he wants firm uh, numbers as far as operating costs. Is that asking too much? No, it's not asking too much, and I'm surprised that staff uh, was not anticipating that question, given that Metrolinx um, had indicated uh, the gross uh, cost uh, at $20 million, uh, subject to reducing it by the fare box uh, intake and uh, other uh, added uh, added uh, uh, income that would come to the city. Uh, you know, it's a question that's been asked, and so now staff has to do what it should have done, I think, uh, beforehand and have a, a ready answer. I think there is an answer, and uh, the councillor wants it and should have had it, and we'll get it uh, within the next two weeks, I'm, I'm understanding. So from what I'm I'm interpreting from this, it's a case of trying to get those operating costs down and how other things can be found to balance it out. Right, exactly. 
And as we uh, discussed the um, the last time we had this conversation, and and you asked, is this it now? Is there is this final? And I said, well, this is Hamilton, so nothing is ever final. Uh, it seems with major projects, they always continue, or there's always something else that pops up that needs to be dealt with. Um, so the, the 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 operating costs are can be figured out by by uh, reducing the 20 million by the fare box intake, and also there are operating costs currently to running HSR buses, and if you eliminate those, that further reduces the equation. Uh, but what's unknown at this point and won't materialize for a few years is the economic uptake, the extra money that's coming into city coffers as a result of uh, investments along the route. I'm understanding $750 million already has been invested in properties along the route. And once they are constructed, they'll bring in money into the coffers. And uh, there's another quarter of a billion dollars, I'm understanding, uh, that's uh, in the wings, ready to be invested once the go-ahead is given uh, by council. So that should figure into people's thinking as well, and not just the the raw number around uh, the operating cost. So, uh, is the is the objective here to get this cost down to zero? Is that possible? Well, that's, or just that's, get it reduced in some way? And and yeah, and what is yeah. that magic number? Yeah, so it's neither possible to get it down to zero, uh, nor is it practical uh, to do that. Right now, they're spending money on uh, running transit along that route. So it's costing the city all sorts of money uh, to run transit for good reason, to you know, uh, allow people to travel from point A to point B. Uh, also, um, there's a hidden cost in the infrastructure below the ground that's going to be fixed up with this uh, $3.4 billion investment that the city alone would have to pay for, which is now paid for by this investment if it goes through. So it's it's a complicated uh, uh, formula that councillors are aware of, and I'm surprised that some of these questions are still being asked because they've been told a thousand times what the... uh, what the stakes are and what the uh, opportunities as well as uh, the upside for this project is for the city of Hamilton. And whether you are along that line that will use the train or not, you as a resident, a resident of Stony Creek, Winona, uh, Binbrook, uh, Ancaster, uh, Flamborough will benefit because you don't have to contribute to the infrastructure costs as you would otherwise. Uh, that will go into future projects along this route. So the memorandum, uh, memorandum of, uh, of understanding was delayed. What does that mean? Uh, and will we see uh, the questions that Councillor Ferguson wants answered answered? Will this, is this just another technicality? Well, no, I, I think it's a, it's a real uh, answer to a real question that has yeah. to be provided. <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, two weeks is... The timeline they've talked about for staff to come up with those answers uh, and I'm hoping that once they're given uh, people will see the totality of uh, of the project uh, and approve it moving forward the MOU or Mo- uh, memorandum of understanding of course is the legal language that commits all parties the province and the city to how this is going to operate uh, and be funded going forward and that's important to do
So, uh, in your mind, where are we now? And and with th- this latest situation, where does that leave things? What's next? Well, so we are stuck, uh, as we have been still, although um, in two weeks, um, uh, thereabouts, we will know one way or the other uh, whether this project goes forward or not. Uh, we are in a position where I understand from the reporting that's being done that uh, there's almost an even split um, among councillors as to those who support those who will not support the project. And that's the most befuddling thing to me of all, how anybody can say no to $3.4 billion investment in this city is is just not something I can wrap my mind around. Uh, and I, I we are at a spot where council is going to be judged. Uh, this is a, a critical moment, and all of council will be judged uh, on whether it goes forward or not. And my guess, my uh, opinion, my um, a, a reasoned opinion, I think, uh, is that if they say yes, uh, all of the debates will be forgotten and the project will move forward. If they say no, this will be a taint uh, on everybody, uh, and uh, and Hamilton especially. Uh, by the two levels of government that are funding this project. How will they ever trust again uh, the city of Hamilton in terms of giving it what it deserves uh, when they've asked for something, they've been given something, and they turn around and say no? That, to me, is unacceptable, and and I just can't believe that the councillors around the table will allow that to happen. I hope not. And, you know, I know at the beginning of this discussion or when uh, the Ontario government canceled this way back when, that there were options. You could use the money for wherever. Now, this is a package that's come together for the LRT. Is there this illusion going on again that we've got $3.7 million in the bank that we can spend on whatever we want? No, I I think that's been pretty well um, done away with. I think uh, it's been clarified that this is the project. Uh, for for good reason, it has the greatest economic uh, uh, benefit. Uh, BRT, I understand, uh, is even more expensive and not and doesn't bring you the benefits that uh, LRT does. Uh, and it's shovel ready. They've done all the environmental assessment. They've done all the planning. They know exactly where they're going to put things. And uh, they once they strike the deal, they'll be able able to hit the ground running in terms of uh, implementing the project. And so. Uh, to think that, you know, we can do other things, as some of the councillors have said, uh, is just not practical at this point. Uh, council should say yes to this and then move on to the other parts of the BLAST uh, network that can be uh, that can be helped over the next number of years. How concerned are you of death by delay? Very. Uh, I, I was hoping that they would have made that decision yesterday. Uh, I'm, I'm told and I'm hearing, I listened to the debate, um, and read, uh, you know, the news reports uh, that that things are 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 dicey in terms of uh, uh, the number of votes uh, that will allow this project to go forward. I am hoping that saner heads will prevail, and that those members of council um, who um, are supportive will will remain supportive, and those who have questions will have them answered and we'll uh, then move to, to approve this project. It's, a, it's a, a generational investment in the city by senior levels of government. And when I was involved politically, and I was involved for 25 years, we used to be thrilled if we got 
$20 million, $30 million, uh, $150 million for the expressway, for example, or 160 whatever it was, as an, an, as an investment from other levels of government. We were thrilled at those numbers. This is $3.4 billion. How anybody who's elected to lead the city can shrug that off is not something that I can wrap my head around very readily. It's fascinating when uh, you, you you go on to Twitter and you announce that you're going to come on here and talk about this sort of thing. The response from people and your followers about oh, asking God. you asking you for advice on how they deal with city council. Um, talk a little bit about. Um, and again, we don't need to zero anybody out or, or what no, have no, you. But no, but no. they seem to be they seem to be at the at the forefront of all of these discussions and reason for uh, confusion and 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 and, and the pro and the project stalling. And I mean, there's a long list of projects that are like this. What is yeah. your view on this? When is this going to change? When are we going to see? Uh, you know, uh, the ambitious city as opposed to a city that's just trying to hang on to 1973? Well, so there are a couple of uh, points there. One is, you know, social media, and social media is not a barometer of how people uh, in the city feel because most folks are not on social media, uh, Twitter or Facebook. Um, there are some who are, many who are, especially the activists, and uh, and some of them have done some good analysis. Um of, uh, of why we should move forward. Others have done some damage by, by you know, totally and constantly insulting councillors whose support they need for this project, which I think is strategically dumb and, and uh, not, uh, not very um, uh, conducive to getting people on side. You know, there is a, an old adage about uh, winning friends and influencing people, and it doesn't start with insult the hell out of them. You know, it just doesn't do that. Be that as it may, though, um, the councillors around the table are smart people. I know all of them. I've worked with most of them uh, in one way or, or another, when they were staff members or, or colleague councillors. Uh, I've seen them operate over the last number of years, and there isn't a person around that table that doesn't have the intelligence to grasp the significance of this. doesn't mean they support it. They have their reasons to be skeptical and they have their reasons to ask the questions that they are. But not one of them is, is not smart enough to understand that this is a generational investment that's being made in the city. Some of them, I dare say, are hoping that for political, parochial reasons, they're going to vote no, but they're hoping that the majority will vote yes so they can have it both ways. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that, that's good stewardship, but, but, you know, it's real politics as well. Um, I think... I think, though, that we're at a, a, a dangerous point where if everybody thinks that the other guy's going to pass it and I can say no, uh, you're going to find yourself not passing it. And then everybody gets tainted by the same brush of, you know, being being stuck in 1970 and all of all of the things that you said. So I'm, I'm hoping that people before uh, the next meeting, when they have to decide and the province is putting some pressure, they need to know one way or the other. They need to know. I'm hoping that people will look themselves in the mirror. They will examine their own consciences they, and they will hopefully do the right thing because this is, I'm convinced, the right thing for the city of Hamilton. You just don't say no to a $3.4 billion investment 
and think that there isn't going to be repercussions as a result of that. So I'm all right, Larry. I'm I, I can't let you go, Larry. Without sorry, what was that? Yeah, I, I'm very hopeful that they will do the right thing. It'll be fascinating to watch this. I uh, can't let you go without asking you about also yesterday at council uh, talking about the uh, reviving the entertainment district, the $400 million involved in that. Your thoughts on that process, what's happening? Well, let me tell you that, that the LRT debate, you know, for all the right reasons, there's great drama there, uh, has overshadowed that other aspect. And, of course, it was a situation held in camera because there are contractual issues and the details will be released once council approves it next week, I understand. But that is a big, big deal. We're talking about the center of the city. We're talking about major uh, major uh, venues uh, that, that need huge investments. Uh, um, you know, first Ontario Place, former Cops Coliseum, uh, the art gallery, uh, the convention center that we know is much too small to attract uh, good conventions to a city our size. Uh, and other developments downsize, uh, 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 downtown, uh, all stand to benefit by this agreement. And we'll see and be able to judge when the details are released. But uh, I, 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 I'm convinced that, uh, that it will be positive, continue to be positive for the city. Everybody seems to have uh, supported it uh, uh, in, uh, on council, so that augurs well. Uh, so that, that's a huge, huge deal. And, and the irony doesn't escape me, Scott, that here council had, had uh, you know, their hands on, on the reins of progress for the city. Uh, LRT on one side and the uh, venues on the other. And, and, they're, and they're holding firmly and ably the ones around the venues and they're loosening the grip on the one around LRT. Mm. And, and they don't see that it's, one step forward and another step backward, I'm hoping that they'll be able to connect those dots. Yeah, imagine if uh, both of these projects come to fruition at roughly the same time. It will have a huge impact on the downtown. Huge. Transformative. All right, Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about LRT and, of course, uh, revived uh, uh, revived uh, a situation in the entertainment district involving uh, First Ontario Centre and, of course, the convention centre. Lots in the works for the hammer uh, in the immediate years ahead if we all start rowing in the right direction. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's uh, turn to a report that uh, is coming out of the uh, the committee that was formed to discuss China-Canadian relations. Uh, and there's an interesting article in the Globe and Mail from uh, Stephen Chase and Robert Fife. New report details Beijing's foreign influence operations uh, in Canada. And I want to I want to read you just the first paragraph here, uh, first paragraph or two. China has set up a sophisticated network in this country to harass people of Chinese ethnicity and Uyghur, uh, Uyghur and uh, Tibetan Canadians, uh, distort information in the media, influence politicians and form partnerships with universities to secure inter, uh, intellectual property, says a new study, a report from the Alliance Canada Hong Kong uh, that was tabled on Monday evening at the Special House 
Subcommittee on Canada-China Relations warns that the influence operations by the People's Republic of China are widespread and have gone largely unnoticed. Alliance Canada-Hong Kong is an umbrella group for Hong Kong pro-democracy advocates uh, in this country. To talk more about all of this, parliamentary senior parliamentary reporter Stephen Chase is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Has this gone unnoticed, or have we just are we just choosing to ignore it? I think we're learning more and more. And what's interesting is that this, as you know, Canada has a long and rich history of of, of immigration from China and and territories controlled by China. So, what we have are many people in Canada who speak Chinese, read Chinese, and they're the ones drawing it to our attention. So, how come how? Become, as they become more are, um, organized and articulate, we're learning more, and, and as such as this report that was tabled in Parliament on Monday. So it is Chinese Canadians that are bringing this to our attention. Are we paying attention to what they're saying? Uh, because there's a certain amount of danger for them in doing so, is there not? There is. There is a lot of harassment um, and, and vitriol directed at them. And when we say uh, harassment and vitriol, we mean from people who are working for the people's Republic of China, and specifically for the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is really what um, is sort of the the object of all the focus of these reports and its behavior in Canada. It seems that whenever we bring this up, uh, we're accused of anti-Asian racism. Here we have Chinese Canadians that are expressing this. I've had this situation with other experts from other areas of the world say the exact same thing, that they came here to avoid this sort of thing, and now the Canadian government is letting that happen here. Uh, is this falling on deaf ears? Well, you know, we're an open society, right? We're an open society. We're trusting and we're open. We don't have... Um, 24-hour surveillance on every street. We don't have, uh, you know, Gestapo monitoring people's behavior. So there's a lot of opportunity uh, for people to do what they want. And so this this behavior has been uh, increasing um, and become more malignant, according to the Alliance Canada Hong Kong organization. It's become more malignant in the last, uh, they would say, uh, five to ten years. And and they are uh, they detail, for instance, how groups that are effectively working for on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party have set up uh, what would seem to be legitimate community groups, and these community groups are used to sort of help um, help uh, carry out the wishes of what's called the United Front Work Department. The United Front Work Department is the agency in Beijing responsible for coordinating its overseas influence operations. So. We're, we're learning more about this because uh, Chinese Canadians and other people victimized by the Chinese Communist Party are bringing it to our attention, and because under President Xi, who took power in 2012, uh, under him things have gotten a lot worse. How does Canada address this without being branded racist, as China has? Well, um, the people who wrote the report, as I said, who are both... Um, you know, Han, Han Chinese origin, and also Uyghurs and Tibetan, they're, they're, they are saying that there should be a far more responsive uh, reaction from the police, uh, from the security intelligence agencies, when people complain. They often raise the, the concern that when you go to the police and try to explain this, it just gets kicked around to another department because it's not a typical, you know, property crime or... Um, you know, uh, physical violence uh, that, that that can be easily where there's um, 
where there is a perpetrator that can be easily found. In many of these cases, it's done, uh, this harassment and intimidation are done over the phone, um, or people are, uh, relatives in China, are forced to call Canada to warn people here that they need to stop their behavior. So it's not easy wow. for the governments to do this, and the governments have tended to ignore this. And what, what, the, what these, these people are asking for, these are Chinese uh, Canadians, Uyghur Canadians, Tibetan Canadians. They're asking for government to organize um, a better system of dealing with it. As well, they want, they want Canada to bring in the law that Australia has brought in, which would require people and organizations acting on behalf of foreign states to register as foreign agents. The United States also has this law. And uh, this, foreign, this agency on foreign influence would basically keep track of who's working for who. And this has, again, been, been, it's been in effect in the U.S. for a long, long time, and it's recently been implemented in, the, in Australia. Uh, is this enough? Ha- has the Chinese Communist Party become too interwoven into Canadian institutions to change this? Because, you know, even, for example, the universities that are dependent on the money from China. I think that the universities have suffered a drop in domestic funding, and they're desperate for money. And so it's, a natu- it's been a natural alternative source to turn to, and they're very, they're very reluctant to turn that money tap off. But at the same time, what uh, security, former, former security agency heads tell us, people who have retired now and can talk about it, what they tell us is that when you call the Chinese government on its behavior, it does draw red lines. They do tend to re- respond, and they do tend to be far more reluctant to overstep. So calling it out, stopping it, addressing it um, overtly actually helps. Uh, is there a lot of tension, and I've heard this on campuses, between Chinese Canadians and Chinese nationals that are there as students? Well, what wh- what we have is we have a, a lot of, of, of international students from China, and there is, uh, for a long time, been uh, reporting and uh, discussions about how the, the consulates in, for instance, Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto uh, have a big role in organizing them to to speak out in defense of their country, whether uh, China is being criticized for its treatment of the Uyghurs or its crackdown on Hong Kong and so on. So yes, there has been um, there's an interesting uh, dynamic there where you have mainland Chinese students who are um, who are very feel very patriotic and want to speak out for their country and and are quite defensive. So that that's something that has come up and also came up during the protests over the crackdown in Hong Kong. Uh, if it maybe last summer and the summer before. Uh, and, and we also saw this, uh, or did we see this, with the Huawei CFO. There seemed to be, whenever there was a court appearance early on in all of this, there were people there supporting her and, and saying to free her and what have you. And, and yeah. whenever we started to do any investigation into that, it was, it was, oh, nothing to see here, nothing new here. Well, there was actually paid protesters who were hired, yeah. to, and they had been hired surreptitiously, and they weren't even sure who they were hired by. To, they were paid to show up and, and protest on behalf of Miss Meng. So uh, what recourse do Chinese Canadians have in this country who are being harassed by the Chinese Communist Party or their families are? They're, supposed, they're told to go to the police. And as I said before, uh, they, get, they find the cases get knocked around or they, they sort of ping pong between different organizations and they respond, the complaint that they've had, but also groups like Amnesty International have had is there's no 
one-stop shopping complaint point for this. There's no nobody who's going to say the buck stops here. So in, in what they tend to do is they find their complaint bounces around between local police departments or the RCMP or and sometimes CSIS, and we don't get a sense that they're ever being resolved um, uh, sufficiently. Sometimes it's because the harassment is coming from overseas and it's difficult to address that. Um, are Canadian politicians too invested in China to address this? Because, again, it, it seems we're hearing about it, but nothing seems to be done. We seem to be taking a more passive stance on all of this. For example, the two Michaels. Yeah, it's a hard question to... Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that... Um, I mean, we have this Canada-China committee, which has been... Uh, you know, shining a light in this for the past year and a half. Uh, in terms of um, you know actions out the other end, that uh, is new new uh, measures and, and programs. Yes, we have not seen a lot t- to date, but you have seen the University of Alberta uh, recently order uh, all its major universities. Oh, sorry, the uh, government of Alberta order all its major universities to suspend any new partnerships with China. And undertake a review of of the of the collaboration and to what extent it's benefiting um, the military and security apparatus in China. So there are developments, but not necessarily out of the uh, current federal government. Uh, yeah, it seems odd the provincial government is making uh, these calls, but the federal government isn't. Shouldn't this be something that's uniform across the country? Quebec has also hinted it may be considering similar measures as well. What about the story behind the Winnipeg lab and firings uh, in regard to the exchange of information and such? So in t- uh, almost two years ago, uh, two scientists were fired from the Winnipeg lab. One of them was the head of uh, a-, a program within what's called the Special Pathogens Branch, Dr. Chu and her husband, Dr. Cheng. They were expelled from the lab in July 2019, and then this January, January 2021, they were fired. Uh, the government has the government story uh, as to what ha- was going on here has evolved. Originally, it was simply an administrative matter and possibly some policy breaches, and now it's a matter of utmost national security that cannot be divulged to parliamentarians or at least to the Canada-China Committee. So. What's happened is the uh, the Conservatives and the NDP and the Bloc have been pushing the government in committee, in the Canada-China Committee, to release details of what happened and why um, uh, Dr. Chu oversaw the transfer to the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, uh, of uh, several deadly viruses. This was in 2019, and, and it doesn't have any relation to, to covid and so they've been pressing the government to explain why they were fired, what breaches took place, and, and to explain more about these transfers of viruses. The government has uh, stonewalled, withheld about 300 pages of uh, completely blanked out uh, material, and has finally, yesterday or earlier this week, said, well, this is actually a matter of national security, and that's why we can't give it to you. It's not just a privacy issue. And so they can, but all three opposition parties, um, the Conservatives, the Bloc, and the NDP, all teamed up to uh, uh, basically um, pass a motion uh, ordering the Public Health Agency of Canada to divulge all this information in uncensored form to the Speaker of the Commons. As you know, uh, Parliament is supreme, and parliamentarians have a right to information from the government. That's that's been tested, and and uh, 
and, uh, you know, I guess validated in several rulings over the past few years. Uh, and right now, the government is act- the liberal government is actually uh, resisting that. They're saying, no, we don't want to turn this over. This is too, se- too, too sensitive to national security. And we want to go to a special committee that the prime minister created, uh, not a committee of parliament, but the special committee the prime minister created, um, and, and have them look at it. But this committee uh, is completely a creature of the PMO. It, uh, its members are appointed uh, by the PMO. And uh, PMO has a right to redact or censor or withhold hold any of the information from them. So it's a bit of a showdown. The three opposition parties have asked the government to release information, just like they did over Afghanistan 10 years ago. And, and the liberals are refusing to do that. So that's where we stand on that. Is this not proof of the extent of this interference? I mean, especially what's happened in the, in the Winnipeg lab, which is obviously very sensitive. We, we don't know. We don't know. We're just completely in the dark. Canada has one of the most opaque national security procedures in the world. Uh, the government often shrouds everything in privacy and, and confidentiality and so on. So uh, this attempt by parliamentarians was an attempt to pierce that veil, and the government's resisting. So we do not have enough information to explain what was happening, except to to tell you that it is so serious the government's willing to defy an order of parliament. Uh, you know, this seems almost political when it should be nonpartisan at all. It's it's about the country. It's about security. Is that mood changing? You know, I wouldn't say it's political because the conservatives and the bloc and the NDP do not see yeah. do not see the same on many topics. So that's true. It's very unusual. Uh, you know, the NDP and the and the bloc would be very happy to to tell the conservatives to go jump in the lake. So this is a very strange and uh, rare occurrence uh, for them all three to agree on this. Well, does that put more pressure on the prime minister then? I don't know. It is We have a COVID pandemic raging, and there's a lot of other things to distract people and to focus people's attention. So he may feel that people have... Uh, the uh, the population is too focused on COVID and and doesn't care about this, and that therefore he can move with more impunity than he might on other issues. On the other hand, hasn't COVID nineteen uh, attracted more attention to China and their practices? It has. Yep, absolutely. Especially the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is uh, in the city where uh, we first detected COVID nineteen. Anything more on the two Michaels or how any of this is affecting them? Well. Um, they are still in captivity. Nothing's changed. Uh, the assumption remains that until Madame Mung goes home, the Michaels don't come home. Wow. Uh, Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. The article is New Report Details Beijing's Foreign Influence Operations in Canada. Stephen, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.